Hello, Katie here, reminding you that it's not too late to send in your favorite sounds. Sounds that you hear every day. Sounds that remind you of something special or something ordinary. A sound that is just a part of what makes your day happy. We want to hear the sounds in your life and send it to us along with the story of that sound. You can send the story by email or explain it to us on the Voice Memo app. And that's how you're going to record that sound. Open the Voice Memo app on your phone, record the sound, and send it to us by email, bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you're having any trouble. You can always contact us through the bittersweetlife.net. And while you're there, consider supporting the show. This show exists because of listeners who love it. If you want it to continue for another year, imagine us like performers on the street of Rome and throw a tip in the hat. And thanks. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we're going to hearken back to Tiffany's past, but also her current present, which (laughs) is what you originally started out in Rome sort of as, was a tour guide. And it's something that you still do today, although less frequently, um, Mm -hmm. but often for the listeners to this show, which makes it extra fun. I just thought we'd delve a little bit into... uh, the world of the tour guide, like what kind of tours are you doing? What does it take to be one? That sort of thing. You know, people are always mm-hmm. looking for ways and reasons to move abroad. And, you know, I think teaching English as a second language pops into your head first sometimes, but tour guiding also pops into your head. But then what's the reality of becoming a tour guide in a country that's not your own? I mean, uh, so interesting. So many questions, Tiffany. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Well, you know, it's funny. I I just did a tour a couple of days ago for one of our listeners. And you're right that lately the majority of my business comes from our listeners, which is, or friends of our listeners, people who've been referred by our listeners. And it's, it's a really wonderful way to do tours because a, I don't have to work for an agency, which is great. And it's, it's possible because I only do it sporadically. I don't do it as my full-time job, but also because I feel like I already have, even before we start, I already have some kind of relationship with the people, even if they're not the listener, like maybe uh, earlier this week, I had the, the sister of one of our listeners mm. um, who was, uh, who was on tour with her partner but there's already some kind of a little relationship there. And then on Friday, I had a tour with one of our longtime listeners and supporters, and that was just so much fun. And it was funny because the very first thing that he asked me was, is it weird for you when you meet people who know so much about your life and you don't know anything about them? And we've talked about this before, and it is weird. It is getting more normal though now. And I had been emailing with him for so long because he was supposed to come earlier and, you know, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So I already felt like I I had some kind of um, two-way relationship going with him already, but it's just so fun to, to go into it, knowing that the people who you're going to be spending the next three hours with talking to 
they have a positive expectation from you. You know, they already maybe know your voice. They know a little bit about what to expect because they've listened to you. It makes it so much easier. You don't have to like, feel like, oh my gosh, I have to work to win these people over and like make them, make them like me and make them believe what I'm saying. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, all of this kind of thing, which can happen when, you know, it's just these random people that you've never heard of and never seen before. Yeah. So, well, you said too, um, that you don't have to pay an agency just out of curiosity's sake. If I was a tour guide having to pay an agency, how much money would I be giving them? Well, it's not that you would be paying the agency. It's that the agency would be accepting the booking, taking the money, charging what they want, and then they would pay you. I see. I see. Yeah. So I'd be and, getting and, some and it sort really of... and it really depends on the, the agency how much they pay. And sometimes it depends on the tour guide how much they charge because there are some tour guides who maybe are very, very experienced and don't want to accept what maybe a new tour guide might be might accept mm-hmm. and it's pretty it can it can vary quite uh not i wouldn't say dramatically but it can vary quite a bit and yeah because i don't have to you know work through an agency i feel like i can offer really i would say relatively co- competitive prices like i definitely don't charge what a tour agency would charge what kind of tours do you do because obviously the city of rome is vast i know that you don't do vatican tours but how do you figure out what to even memorize or where to take people I used to do Vatican tours. That's what I started out doing because that's, you know, where the market was and is. It's either, you know, Vatican or the Colosseum. Those are the two big attractions. And that's the thing that most people, if they're going to, you know, cough up money for a tour guide, it's going to be at one of those two places. But I don't like the crowds and I don't really like the vibe at either of those places. I, I never liked doing Colosseum tours. I'm not like an ancient Roman yeah, expert. I feel much more comfortable talking about Renaissance art or the things that you would come across in the city as opposed to in like the Forum or the Colosseum. So you said you don't like the vibe at the Colosseum. What is the vibe <laughs> at the Colosseum and at the Vatican? I mean, Vatican? it's just it's just a bit more cutthroat. You know, there's so many tour guides there, and it's just like I, I don't want to go into the Vatican, but it's it's not a very um, friendly place. <laughs> so I'm not going to go any further than that, but I'll, you, well, I will answer your earlier question, which is what tours do I do? So because I don't do tours as my only job, I have the, the privilege of being able to choose what kind of tours I do. So I do the tours I really truly enjoy doing. And that is a sort of central walking tour of the city of Rome, um, which is you, you came on Mm-hmm. this tour with Derek um years ago and I think back in 2013 yeah it was moved here. one of the first things I did yeah. upon landing in Rome yeah. yeah it's a fun tour because it's great if like the people have just arrived because they haven't you know it's perfect when people haven't seen anything and so I make sure that with the exception of course of the Vatican and the Colosseum they're pretty much hitting all of the major sites in the city it's nice because they're all within walking distance it takes about three hours and we see a lot of the big sites, but also along the way, some smaller sites that I think are nevertheless very important. So that's probably my most popular tour. And I also do a tour called Secret Rome, which is really, I, I don't do any of those major sites. I just do the lesser known and sort of like middle. So I'm not doing anything that is far away because it would take too long in the tour. No, I'm not going down to Eur, you know, doing anything so far off the beaten track. So it's all central, but it's, 
you know, smaller churches, churches that have maybe like a fresco that you, you might not see if you also have to hit those big sites, like the Trevi fountain and the Spanish steps. So that's what I call my secret Rome tour. It's not, it's not that I'm going to places that are so obscure, nobody's heard of them, but they're places that the average tourist might miss. Mm -hmm. And that is what I did with our listener, Stephen, just the other day. I also do a Caravaggio tour, which is my number one favorite tour. And I call it in the footsteps of Caravaggio because it's not just seeing Caravaggio's paintings. It's also following in his, literally in his footsteps, going to where he lived, the different places that he lived, where he got into the duel that ended in a murder and he had to escape Rome, you know, where he would have gone to church, where the studios were, where he, that, that he worked at. And of course we see several of his paintings along the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm so passionate about Caravaggio, as you know, that I just have so much fun doing that tour. Like, it's just like, I get to talk about Caravaggio for three hours. Right, right. And the other major tour that I do is a tour of the trust of Trastevere and the Jewish ghetto, which I do together. And that's also a really fun one. So, I mean, a three hour tour, like you said, I went on your, on your kind of central Rome three hour tour, which was super valuable in the sense that it, I still think about the stuff that you taught me. And when I was on that tour, you know, not like I think about it in my day to day, but when I'm in Rome, it actually helps me navigate the city. Oh, cool. Um, you know, I mean, because you do like the practical things. I mean, it's the big history, but you're also, you know, teach you how to use a water fountain in Rome, um, <laughs> you know, which is more fun than you would think. Uh, but three hours, like how do you figure out the the layout of the stories that you're telling in, in the three hours or how do you? You know, and then and then figuring out the layout of it and then also figuring out the memorization of all of the facts. I mean, you've been doing it for a while now, so maybe you don't remember. But how in the world did you craft these things to begin with and then memorize them? You know, it's it's hard to say. I think it is something that comes that just comes with time and with practice. When it comes to timing, I would say two things. Number one, I think you just you get to a point where you just, you know how you said that you can just feel how long a minute is like, you can just feel it in your body mm -hmm. from your days in the radio. Yeah. I am like that, but with three hours, like I, <laughs> um, you know, I never, every so often I will pull out my phone and just check the time and make sure I understand what time it is, but I have a, just a sense of the rhythm of it and how fast I have to go and how fast I have to go to keep people interested. You know, you can't spend too much time on one site because people will get a little bit bored and a little antsy, even if they're not bored, even if they're interested in what you're saying, it's natural. And I find myself doing the same thing when I'm taking a tour where I'm like, wow, we've been here a long time. Like, we're not going to get to see very much if we're going to spend this much time in each place. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure you do keep it moving but not so fast that you're not going in. You know, I try to go into a certain level of depth, which eat with each stop that I make. So I have my own personal happy medium of, of sort of a speed of my tour. And that works for me. I don't know. Other guides might have other ways of doing it, but you do also have to be aware that people on your tour are going to have their own speed. And you might have a family, a really big family with little kids and they just might need to stop and get a gelato and, you know, chill out, or you might have an older couple who need to sit down. You have to just be flexible. And all of my tours, there's sort of like the last few stops could be cut if necessary. Mm. 
you know, and I might have a Rome city tour that I end in Piazza Farnese and that's sort of the last stop. But if I'm going slower, it'll end in Piazza Navona. We won't get to those last few stops and that's okay. Unless somebody has said to me, you, you must go here. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a problem if I skip a couple of places. And I, and I do tell people, you know, do you want to stop for coffee? We can stop here at Santo Stacchio and get a coffee. And it's very, it's a very cultural aspect of the city. You know, coffee is a, a very important cultural aspect of, of Italian life. And some people want to experience that as part of the tour. Some people would rather just go see more artistic sites or historical sites. So mm-hmm. you, you ask people and you see what they want to do. As far as memorizing the tours, I mean, I, I happen to be gifted at memorization. It is something that has come relatively easy for me. I'm not, it's not that I have photographic memory or anything like that. So I do have to study. And when I, and, and I have tours that I don't give as often, like I'll do, I do tours of the Capitoline museums as well, but I just get so few requests for mm-hmm. the Capitoline museums that when I get one, I have to go back and study because I will forget minute details mm. and dates and things like that. And I have to maybe refresh myself on exactly which rooms I'm going to go to. So this might put you on the spot, but to give an example, <laughs> I mean, I know it's probably easier to remember what you've memorized if you're actually standing in the location, right? Mm-hmm. But let's yeah. pretend that we're standing in a location and can you like give me the memorized spiel about a place just to see what it's what it's like. All right. I mean, I can talk about the Pantheon. Okay. Do you want me to act like I'm telling a tour, doing a tour or do you want me to just tell you facts? Like, no, like, no like act like you're doing a tour. Dry facts. <laughs> act act, like- I have to act like I'm doing a tour. All right. So the Pantheon is, believe it or not, the third version. This is the third version of the Pantheon. Uh, the first Pantheon was built under Emperor Augustus by the great Roman general Marcus Agrippa. Now, Marcus Agrippa was a close friend of Emperor Augustus. He also ended up being his son-in-law. He married his daughter and he builds the very first pantheon on this spot. By the way, the pantheon literally means temple to all gods. And uh, technically any God could be worshiped there, but, but generally there is, you know, a, a group of 12 major Roman deities that are part of the Roman pantheon. And this particular, this first version of the pantheon is built in 17 BC. Now, sadly, it is burned to the ground. It is rebuilt under Emperor Domitian in the year 80 AD, and it actually burns down a second time. And a lot of people say, well, how could this big stone building burn down? Well, there were a lot of the uh, structure is made out of wood on the inside, and we don't know exactly how it looked. We don't know that it was exactly like the Pantheon that you see in front of you. It, it could have been different. We don't have, um, we don't have photographic evidence of what it looked like, but this version, the third and final version of the Pantheon was built in 127 AD under Emperor Hadrian. So that means it is coming up on 1900 years old. Wow. Yeah. And so it was, uh, even though Emperor Hadrian built this particular building, he wants to give credit to the original builder of the Pantheon, Marcus Agrippa. So he writes, uh, he he includes the original inscription that would have been on the first Pantheon, which is M. Agrippa, Marcus Agrippa, LF, which stands for Lucius Filii, the son of Lucius, Cos Tertium, 
which means it was his third time as consul. Fetch it, made this. So this is Marcus Agrippa, the son of Lucius, during his third consulship, made this. Hmm. That's cool. That's sort of the beginning. Uh, and then we go in. That'll usually get us through the line. And then we go, because there's a line at the Pantheon these days. Mm -hmm. um, and then we go inside and I continue to talk about the Pantheon. I talk about how it's built and uh, and other details and some of the interior details. Yeah. Do you talk about the grave of Raphael while you're there? Oh, of course. That's a that's a big part. It's a more, more very important part of the tour of the Pantheon. Do you want to tell us some of that part? As well, an example I mean, of what you would do in an interior space? <laughs> well, Raphael is one of several artists who are buried inside the Pantheon, but Raphael being so much more popular than the others, they carved out, they cut out the marble where, you know, behind which his tomb sits and put in glass. So you could actually see his tomb, beautiful marble tomb with, a, with a, an inscription by Pietro Bembo. Uh, the inscription reads, it's in Latin, but the translation of it is... Here lies Raphael, whom while he lived, nature feared to be outdone. But, what, but now that he lay dying, she fears that she will die herself. Mm -hmm. And of course, Raphael dies after, you know, first of all, he dies at only 37 years old, on, apparently on his 37th birthday. Mm. In fact, they say that he died after a very, very wild night with his mistress quite uh, wild wouldn't you like to know what happened that night my goodness <laughs> <laughs> yes very curious very curious i mean it's possible that he was you know already ill beforehand and didn't know it mm -hmm. um and was just you know exaggerating maybe a heart attack i mean i'm like what could it have been heart attack not sure yeah um, i've also read somewhere that maybe he had pneumonia but oh, i can't remember there yeah there might be more uh, a fact that, that we could look up and, and point to, but uh, I like to leave it at this sort of, uh, you know, leave it up to people's imaginations. Yes. And then at the Tristembre tour in the Jewish ghetto, you could actually show where at least it's thought that Raphael's mistress actually lived is a mm -hmm. building that's still standing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's, uh, there's a restaurant there that used to be called La Fornarina, the, the baker's daughter, which she is known in history as the baker's daughter. He paints her at some point and her and the painting is called La Fornarina uh, but now it's, there's a new restaurant there that's called La Pulpetta the meatball <laughs> <laughs> not quite as poetic <laughs> not quite as poetic but the sign is still there saying this is where she lived and of course down the street is Villa Farnesina where uh, he was working and you know painting the loggia there and of course the story goes that he left it all in the hands of his his atelier because he was too busy visiting her yeah uh, well, that was a pretty good example. That makes me pretty excited to get back to Rome. Perhaps when we're there, we should do not the full, of course, but we could do a little hybrid of some of the secret spots. That might be kind of fun um, yeah. when we're in the streets. And of course, remember, we're taking requests on what you would like to hear us do in Rome while I'm visiting. All possibilities mm -hmm. on the table. Just uh, send us a note, bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com and make your requests talking for three hours. I know from being on the radio that talking for three hours can be very hard in general, more than you would think, because you're, you're projecting, like on the radio, I'm projecting in a way I wouldn't normally be. So by the time I get done with an however long shift, my voice is just exhausted. But 
but how do you feel after a tour of like with that much energy and that much knowledge having to come out of your head? You know, are you just like laying on the couch in a coma later that night or are you energized by the interaction with the people? Like what do you feel after putting out so much energy? First of all, I should say that it is something that you can get used to physically. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was doing it every day, I was very used to it and it did not tire me out. And I have friends who do two tours a day in the Vatican, where it's not just what you mentioned being tiring for that reason, but also the crowds, they make you even more tired. And so I can't even imagine going back to doing even a tour a day. I, it's too much for me at this point, although I probably could get used to it again, mm -hmm. but um, I'll tell you, it really makes a big difference. The people on the tour, hmm. if I have people on the tour who I can see in their eyes, and also in the things that they ask me, that they're really interested in what I'm saying and they communicate with me, even as little as to say like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If I get that feedback, it doesn't tire me as much. And I feel, I'm not going to say necessarily energized, but I feel like I've had, you know, just a wonderful conversation and I've been with interesting people. And, you know, sometimes you do a tour for people who just, either they're truly not interested or they simply don't express that, you know, and mm -hmm. they might, they might, they might not look at you. They might not really give you any feedback. Those tours absolutely exhaust me. I get finished with a tour like that. And I, yeah, I want to collapse on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a tour where the parents are really interested, but you're also dragging three bored teenagers behind them. <laughs> like stuff like that, I could imagine yeah. would be. It is totally happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Kind of like theater. Exactly. Like yeah. Because we used to act together, Tiffany and I, and, and there were, for whatever reason, crowds really influence each other. And there would be certain crowds where I, I guess you could tell that they were enjoying it, but they'd be so quiet that it almost felt like you know, you're just dragging the play along. It was what it feels like to the performer, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember when I did group tours of the Vatican and at the beginning of a Vatican tour, you have to sort of do a presentation on the Sistine Chapel because you can't talk in the Sistine Chapel. Mm. And I mean, people do, you know, talk amongst themselves, but a tour guide can't get up and start, you know, explaining things. And so all tour guides in the Vatican museums do an explanation using visual aids, either visual aids that they bring themselves or there are posters that are sort of put up in there that you can use. And I used to do group tours and I just remember having one particular day, there were a bunch of teenagers or young adults. And I just remember a couple of them being on their phone, like the entire time. And I just wanted to be like, you know, what do I need to do up here? Like, do I need to do song and dance? Like, do I need to put my tap shoes on? Like, what can I do to get your attention? Puppet show. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's so frustrating. <laughs> and at least when you have a group, you, you know, you know, on your group, you're going to have at least a couple people who are interested. But if you have a, like, a you know, two or three people and all of them are, you know, looking away or not paying attention or... Oh, it's torture. Absolute torture. Hmm. Well, if you're going to Rome and you want to take a tour with Tiffany, what should people do? Obviously, you can write to us. I think that's how yeah. Stephen took his tour with you. You just write to bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com and Tiffany will get it there, of yeah, course. I will get any message that comes through there. You can also just go to the contact page on mm. thebittersweetlife.net. 
You can also visit my website, tiffany-parks.com, where I have a description of the tours that I lead. So you can find the little tab that says tours to find out more. And there's a contact page on there. So there are, there are myriad ways to get in touch. All right. Cool. Well, I look forward to touring with you when I get to Rome. Um, and, and until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. <laughs>